I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to Amir Srinivasan, who's written a piece in the current issue of the LRB about pronouns. It's a review of a book by Dennis Barron called What's Your Pronoun? Beyond He and She, an account of the search for what Barron, a professor of English and linguistics at the University of Illinois, calls the missing word, a third-person, singular, gender-neutral pronoun. Amir's piece covers the history of that search, which has been going on for longer than you might think, should I say than one might think, and the resurgence of the pronoun debate in the last 20 years. English pronouns are in their nature political, Amir writes. Their usage has historically been governed and is in some ways governed still by norms that are produced by hierarchies of power. Hello, Amir, and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Tom. One thing to say before we begin, or as we begin, um, is that there are two different, though related, questions here. One's about the pronouns we use to refer to a subject who could be either male or female, and the other is about finding a word or a set of words with which to reflect as you put it, a gender identity that exists beyond or across the male-female binary. Is that the right distinction? Yeah, I think that is um, a really useful distinction when thinking about the supposed missing word. Um, And so maybe a little grammar lesson up top might be helpful just to get a firmer grip on what that distinction is, if you don't mind. Of course, please. Uh, so, So I think most people today are acquainted with the notion of a non-binary pronoun. So a pronoun like Z or they, which is used by people who feel themselves not to fit within the traditional conventional male-female dichotomy and who want their pronouns, therefore, to reflect that fact about their gender identity. But there are also just many, many cases in English which, just as a matter of grammar, need a third-person singular pronoun that is also gender-neutral. So a common case is one involving what's called an indefinite noun, like the word everyone. So for example, how do you complete the sentence, everyone misplaces blank keys? Actually, Tom, how would you complete that sentence? Um, I would say their keys. Their keys. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about this is that it's, it's very much an English problem, and we can come to this later. But in Italian, for example, you'd say everyone misplaces the keys. Like there are posters all over Italy saying you must wear the mask. Oh. But anyway, to go back to English, I, I would say everyone misplaces their keys. That's so interesting. Uh, everyone places, misplaces the keys. I have a friend who, who also writes for the LRB who says that he would complete the sentence, everyone misplaces my keys. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think most people would be pulled towards saying everyone misplaces their keys, but that's technically not grammatical because everyone is singular and they or their is plural. But it's also important to note that everyone is genderless, right? So it refers to people of all genders. 
So to grammatically complete that sentence, we need a singular third person gender neutral pronoun. Or think about another kind of case um, where we're referring to a noun of unknown gender. For example, in the sentence, the anonymous witness said blank had seen a gruesome act, right? Again, we kind of intuitively want to say the anonymous witness said they had seen a gruesome act, but that's technically speaking, not grammatical. So in English, our choices of third person singular pronoun are simply he, she, one, and it. The problem with saying that everyone misplaces his keys or her keys is that it's also not grammatically correct because everyone is genderless. You can say everyone misplaces one's keys, but it's generally thought that that's really pompous and so isn't an acceptable solution. And notice also that one won't help us in, uh, in the case of the anonymous witness sentence. So it would be very weird to say the anonymous witness said one had seen a gruesome act. It would sound like the anonymous witness was like, you know, the queen. <laughs> and then everyone misplaces its keys is bad, obviously, because we generally think that it should only be used for non-persons. And when it is used for persons, that's seen as a sign of contempt and disrespect. So we just have this quite simple grammatical problem, right? English needs a gender-neutral third-person singular pronoun, uh, both to capture non-binary identities, but also simply to complete many ordinary English sentences. Exactly. And I did think of a sentence in which we do use it. If you say there's somebody at the door, who is it? There's something about that formulation, who is it, which somehow, somehow it doesn't refer to the person. It somehow re refers to the presence of the person at the door. I don't know why that seems to be an acceptable formulation, but the baby hurt its hand is, is seen not to be. Right. That's really interesting. Uh, who is it? I feel like, and I, I don't know if this is grammatically speaking right, it has something in common with it is raining, where the it doesn't really refer to anything or just kind of a state. So who is it? You know, who is the state of knocking, <laughs> producing the state of knocking the door or something like that? But but in a sense, so in the in the old days, as it were, the, the standard, to, be, to be historically precise <laughs> to be, exactly um, well, partly because the question is when 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 these things will happen is itself quite interesting that there was the generic he mm. that it would have been 300 years ago they'd have said everyone loses his keys mm. and would have thought that was that was normal is, is that when the first when grammar started to be formalized mm. so English grammar started to be written um, in the late 16th and then early 17th centuries. What's known as the universal or generic he has a very long history. Some people still use it. Some people still insist on using it. I know a couple of people personally, but I won't name names. And that is a, a, a feature of what happened in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, which is that the very first English grammars were written which attempted to codify and instruct students in proper English usage. Before that, grammar, in the English word grammar, always basically referred to Latin grammar. And so these new English grammars were modeled on Latin grammars. And in fact, some of them were actually even written in Latin uh, just to make things really difficult. Um, and in particular, these English grammars were modeled on William Lilly's Latin grammar, which was taught by a 1540 royal decree in every English school for 300 years. So in his Latin grammar, Lilly explained that in phrases like rex et regina beati, the blessed king and queen, the adjective beati is plural because it has to agree in number with rex et regina, king and queen. 
but also masculine, agreeing in gender with Rex, the king, because, as Lily said, quote, the masculine gender is more worthy than the feminine, and the feminine more worthy than the neuter. And so this came to be known as Lily's worthiness doctrine. And so what happens is that English grammarians simply transpose this worthiness doctrine to the question of how to achieve appropriate agreement between personal pronouns and indefinites in English. And so the first to do so was a woman named Anne Fisher, who published a very widely used textbook on English grammar in 1745. And she explained in her grammar that the pronoun he should be used to refer to nouns of indefinite gender, indefinites like everyone, so that we have everyone misplaces his keys. And the idea here is that he both works as a gender pronoun, as in, you know, the boy loves his dog, but also as a generic universal pronoun, one that just encompasses all of humanity. In the way that man was used as a, as a, as a generic noun to refer to, to all, all people. Exactly. Yeah. And this, of course, fits with a very traditional patriarchal worldview, according to which men are in some sense the universal standard, and then women become this special, generally lesser deviation from that universal standard. Um, and then, but that was challenged in the from the nineteenth century or or before that. So it it came to be very vociferously challenged in the nineteenth century in the U.S. and in the U.K. Although the challenge was really interesting. So what women suffragists started doing in the nineteenth century was arguing that if he was really supposed to be generic and universal then laws on voting, for example, which invariably use the pronoun he and the word man, also should enfranchise women. But perhaps also unsurprisingly, men on the whole were unconvinced by this argument. And insisting, they insisted that he was indeed generic, except in the cases where interpreting it as generic would empower and enfranchise women. And they're sort of nakedly hypocritical about it, weren't they? That if it was a, if it was an act designating a crime, then then it applied to women. But if it an act about voting, it didn't. And they didn't have any, and they didn't have any reasons for that beyond we don't want women to vote, so therefore we say it doesn't apply. Right. So it's just totally nakedly cynical. So if a law imposed burdens um, on citizens, so burdens like taxation or punishment for criminal activity, then the he was always understood um, generically to include both women and men. But whenever a law was conferring benefits, most obviously in the case of voting, it was construed as only applying to men. And this is despite the fact that in 1850, Parliament passed what's called the Act of Interpretation, which said that for the purposes of the law, the word he was a generic encompassing both women and men. But nonetheless, when the 1867 Reform Act uh, extended the franchise beyond property-owning men, um, courts and legislators insisted that the word man and he in the act did not refer to men, uh, sorry, did not refer to women, only referred to certain men. So the question of this gender-neutral pronoun has been political with a capital P as well as well in every sense political for as long as for as long as it's been a question really. Absolutely. So people who complain today, and I imagine we'll get onto this later, about the politicizing of pronouns, uh, don't realize that they're actually in a very long tradition. Men in the 19th century complained that women were, quote, politicizing pronouns. But in fact, what these women were doing and, and their male allies who were also pushing for women's suffrage, what they were doing was pointing out that 
the way that pronouns work in English, and this is also true in many other languages, is itself political. It encodes and sustains and is a symptom of certain practices of gender domination. And it's not, and the, these pronouns are not only political as it relates, as they relate to gender, right? So in the 19th century in the US, for example, enslaved Black women and men in certain uh, American laws were referred to with the pronoun it because they were thought of as property. So the, the shift from using the word it to refer to enslaved Black people to recognizing both their gender and humanity and therefore using the pronoun pronouns he or she was not politicizing pronouns, but recognizing the very, very deeply suspect politics that were already encoded in standard pronoun usage. I mean, the question of of other languages is a really interesting one. This particular form of the of the um, of the pronoun problem is very is very much an English one. In the same way, the possessive pronouns in a lot of other in the European languages agree with the possessed object, not the possessor. So, in the way that in English we say his book or her book. In, in, a, in Italian or in French or in Spanish, it would, the his or her would always be masculine. It would always be sur libre or, or son libre. And you talk, you talk very interestingly about the, use the, the way that the word one is so difficult in English, whereas on in French is a normal way of speaking. Right, on is perfectly normal. It doesn't have that same sort of um, tone of pomposity. But French and, and German and other sort of thoroughly gendered languages have their own kind of gender problems they do yeah i mean the other thing about italian which is just so sort of grotesque about that you know the worthiness doctrine mm. is that if you have a hundred women and one man in a group they are collectively masculine plural i mean the same in french and as many other french things. exactly i remember learning that rule you know at 10 or whatever in french and just being just being horrified and one thing that's interesting of course is that when you read about grammatical gender from grammarians they'll always tell you look, there is no connection whatsoever between these kinds of grammatical rules and how a culture deals with the question of actual social gender. And one thinks to oneself, no connection? Yeah, I mean, but that's gaslighting. I mean, it's pure gaslighting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's obviously the case that you can't read the state of gender relations in a particular culture off its language. I mean, that's a preposterous idea. But at least as a matter of genealogy and history, um, it would be extraordinary if that rule in Italian and French wasn't explained by the view that, yes, um, you know, one drop of man, uh, you know, (laughs) just makes the whole collective a man, right? When all of your nouns are gendered, right, masculine or feminine, as they are in French, or masculine, feminine, or neuter, as in the case of German, um, words like student are gendered. So this produces systematic problems. But interestingly, both French and German have gender-neutral singular third-person pronouns that at least do some of the work that we've been been talking about on in the case of French and man in the case of German. So in a sense, English is less gendered than French and German. Um, Old English used to be like German in that all of its nouns were masculine, feminine or neuter, but that feature was lost in the transition to Middle English. Um, But there are, of course, um, vestiges of grammatical gender in English. So the third person singular pronoun, his or her, uh, but also in distinctions like horse and mare and actor and actress. And if you're a, a monoglot native English speaker, that just seems completely normal to you. 
it's in fact hard for you to imagine what it would be like to have a third person singular pronoun that wasn't gendered. Uh, but there are many, many languages that don't have uh, gendered third personal pronouns. So languages like Malay, Finnish, Hungarian, Estonian, Armenian, Bengali, Persian, Swahili, Ojibwe, Turkish, all of these languages use the same word for he and she, and sometimes for it as well. And there were uh, attempts to sort of reproduce that in English, weren't they? That the, I mean, you come up with this extraordinary list of neologisms. It's sort of one a year for 60 years, and, and none of them has caught on. Right, so Barron's book contains this absolutely wonderful appendix at the back of gender-neutral and non-binary pronouns, which begins in 1841 when an American doctor named Francis Brewster proposed the pronouns E, just written as a single letter, E, S and M as stand-ins or equivalents for he, him, his, or she, her, hers. But this was just the beginning of this really intense and creative moment in English's history, which lasted from the mid-19th century to the early 20th. And what's interesting about Barron's book is it just shows that this kind of search for the missing word wasn't anything like a niche concern. You just had doctors, teachers, lawyers, artists, journalists, musicians, all trying to come up with new words, vying and competing over ownership over invented pronouns, and all debating the merits of different proposals, you know, in magazines, over dinner tables, and so on. And so finding a new pronoun in this period is generally seen in the UK, but also especially, I think, the US, as this matter of great public urgency. And so as you say, uh, Barron's appendix lists around 200 uh, new genderless pronouns, half of which were coined before 1930. And this includes things like thon, hiser, hesh, z, here, ta, lu, um, and my personal favorite, eta, which is a combination of it and a. But they, we, we don't use any of them now, which is, is in many ways a great shame. Um, but I suppose because of the way in which, I mean, language acquisition is such a complicated process. And... Yeah, so it's interesting because, of course, languages are these highly mobile things, right? They're organic products. They, they grow, they change, they shift sometimes because of deliberate interventions, very often because of just changing patterns of, of usage, changing values, changing material structures, obviously cross-pollination with other languages and so on. So some of these new pronouns, as it were, were used, um, even made their way into dictionaries like Thon or into writing. So Ursula Le Guin, for example, in her feminist science fiction, sometimes used pronouns like E. And also some of these gender neutral pronouns have been repurposed um, basically since the 1970s for use as non-binary pronouns. And Z is the very clear case of this. But on the whole, of course, you're right. So none of these pronouns has been taken up in a widespread way, right, such that most English uh, speakers would recognize them and what they mean. And Dennis Barron thinks that this is because these pronouns, he says, tend to look strange on the page and their pronunciation isn't totally clear always. And most importantly, because they have to be explained. And of course, there is the obvious and much used alternative in the form of the singular they. After after the LRB published Mary Wellesley's piece on anchorites last year, we got we got a very angry letter from someone complaining it was badly marred by howler grammatical errors because because Mary had used they as a as a singular pronoun. So I took great pleasure in writing back to him and saying that they had been used as a 
in, as a singular form since the 14th century. So uh, if you wanted to talk about medieval grammar, that was, we could do that. <laughs> right. And it was perfectly in keeping with the, you know, the topic of Mary's piece as well. Exactly, the anchorites. And... Yeah, so in, in this piece I've written, I, I use the singular they 16 times. And I just don't think a normal reader would would notice. Um, I mean, it has been used, as you say, since the 14th century. I mean, it's probably been used since before then. The 14th century, 1375 specifically, is just the first recorded use in written text. Uh, so the it's cited by the OED in this uh, romance, William and the Werewolf, uh, in a line that's translated from the Middle English as, each man hurried till they drew near, um, where William and his darling were lying together. Um, but they was also, I mean, it's it's been used in a singular form, clearly in the early modern period. In the 19th century, one newspaper, one newspaper declared that at least two men out of three and four women out of five use they already with sublime contempt for the rule. Uh, you see it in Dickens. Uh, you see it in lots of writers. And I think even increasingly grammarians are just acceding to the inevitability of the singular they. Jordan Peterson is very against it, however. And of course, the anger of the LRB's correspondent must be connected to Jordan Peterson and that conservative backlash because there's no there's no reason to be angry about it unless I mean Jordan Peterson I mean it's sort of it's I hope we can call him disingenuous without being sued but to claim that his right to free speech would be infringed by having to refer to his students by their preferred pronouns and this idea insisting that what's wrong with he and she is a uh, politically charged and 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 trying to create this this new anger about the use of the word they is a, a sort of a deliberate reactionary political mm. project, isn't it? I mean, to be fair to Peterson, and I and I'm only doing this because I, I also don't want to be sued. I mean, what he does claim uh, is that look, it's one thing to use the singular they to complement indefinites, so to say things like everyone misplaces their keys, but he thinks it's another thing entirely to use they to refer to some particular person to say, for example, um, Mary misplaced their keys. Uh, so he's happy, Peterson, with the, the former, but not the latter. So he, he's okay with they as a genderless, or rather a gender neutral pronoun, but he's not happy, happy with it as a non-binary pronoun. And he claims that its use as a non-binary pronoun is very new. Uh, but that itself is false. So, for example, you know, medical textbooks, early modern medical textbooks were using they to refer to um, intersex people. Uh, Virginia Woolf uses they to refer to Orlando. So these are cases of non-binary uses of they, which um, really do predate what Peterson thinks of as a very kind of recent um, phenomenon. But Peterson is right that there is something ideological at work um, in the use of they as a non-binary pronoun. Um, you know, when we ask people to use they for non-binary people, we are asking them to participate in an ideology that recognizes and I just, I don't mean ideology in a pejorative sense, I just mean as a worldview that, that recognizes that gender is not exhausted by male and female 
But what I think Peterson doesn't recognize, or he's not willing to admit, I think he tacitly does know perfectly well, is that insisting that we only use he or she um, is itself to participate in an ideology. It's the reigning ideology that says that gender is exhausted by um, male and female and is reducible simply to human biology. So these things are unavoidably political. We're we're always making choices, um, either knowingly or unknowingly, about what kind of social and political structures to be supporting when we're thinking about, when we're making choices about what sort of language to use. And that brings us in some way to the problem of third person pronouns at all. I mean, as you come towards the end of your piece, you come up with this idea that maybe that the problem isn't just which pronoun do we use and do we need new ones, but using them at all and that referring to people by the third person pronoun in their presence is in itself dehumanizing or objectifying or or reductive i mean that thing was my mother would say who's she the cat's mother this idea that <laughs> <laughs> right and i think uh so that's been a really common uh response to the piece because one of the things i say is that um as a as a university teacher i i tend to just use people's names Right. So I'm either addressing them as you um, or if I'm talking about them in the third person, I will say, you know, what do you think of Mary's question or something like that? And because saying he or she to me just feels a bit rude. Um, I think because as a child, my mother would always be horrified if I referred to her as she in front of her, quite rightly. Um, and it's interesting that, right, there, it, there's a kind of tacit recognition that when we use third person pronouns, whether they're gender neutral or not, there's a there's a sense in which we're objectifying the person. I don't I don't mean necessarily kind of sexually objectifying them. I just mean treating them as this thing to be kind of categorized and analyzed. It's interesting because the story I tell in the piece is about um, slipping up with pronouns with my student, and uh, they use the they pronoun, um, and I used a gendered pronoun. But I use it in the in their report at the end of term, right? When I when what I was doing was precisely this act of weighing them up, analyzing them, treating like them like a thing to be kind of judged, and it just was never an issue in the tutorials themselves. When I was always addressing them in this kind of second personal way, where I wasn't engaged in a mode of evaluation, but a different kind of relation entirely, right? And I do think the second personal form of address, you, is different in that way. It's, it speaks of a different kind of relation to the other person, um, an engaged relation. And you might also think a, a relation that implicitly recognizes the way in which the other person can't be simply or totally contained by the categories that we use. So I think the answer is just abolish the third person altogether. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I mean, you think that's funny, but I mean, there is a, yeah, there's a long philosophical tradition that basically argues for precisely that at a kind of metaphysical and ethical level. So Martin Buber's, you know, I and you, that, that's basically the thought is we should be treating other persons, but not just other persons. I mean, you might think we should be treating the whole world this way, um, not as an object to be studied or evaluated, but as something to as a thing, as, as something that needs to be sort of communed with in a recognition of its kind of infinity, the, the way in which these things kind of stand outside um, categories and names. I mean, that's a question of naming. It's kind of 
when I when I'm Tom and when I'm Thomas, I kind of I kind of get weirdly annoyed. If <laughs> I was I was surprised that you introduced yourself as as Thomas actually because you're very Tom to me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. But it's somehow it's somehow in writing. There's a thing I don't know. There's like if my username on any like I'm Tom on lots of company sort of username stuff, and I really I've changed them all. I kind of feel that there's some. <laughs> <laughs> difference between a sort of a, sp- a spoken name and a kind of official written down name right and, that, and that's my incredibly low level experience of this sort of being feeling that I've been misnamed mm. and if I feel like that from you know my position the difference between Thomas and Tom which is about as privileged a name as there is really and the idea where, where when people's sense of being misnamed is treated so casually by other people and it's kind of you know as you say in your piece if you can't imagine that then yeah I think that's such a good point but it is interesting the way in which many people who, you know, are, aren't are trans, aren't non-binary, nonetheless do have experiences of misnaming that don't rise to the level of, but, you know, in just a small way approximate that feeling um, of what it must be like to just have the world get your name wrong in some kind of profound way and the extraordinary dissonance that that creates. And I think those experiences are really worth meditating on because when we're thinking about, you know, what reasons we have for using the pronouns that people ask us to use, I mean, one of those reasons can be because we buy into a whole kind of metaphysical framework of gender, right? Because we think that um, there is no real gender binary or some people exist beyond the gender binary, or it could be because of this political goal that feminists have long sought after, which is the goal of abolishing gender, right? But it can also just be because of much more kind of pedestrian and simple things like recognizing that it can feel extraordinarily painful and uncanny and uncomfortable to just be misnamed, even in these kind of quite small ways. So there are are these kind of deep, I think, questions to be asked about the relationship between language and reality. But they're also, I mean, equally deep, but different kinds of questions about just decency and kindness when it comes to how we name people. Yeah, the people should be called what they want to be called. Yeah. It seems very hard to argue with that idea that when you put it when you put it in those terms, it seems how can it be controversial that people should have the names they want to have? Yeah, except I mean I do think it's not that hard to understand why people find it difficult because language is this kind of public thing. So when you apply to yourself a name that I apply to myself, it can feel like you're changing the meaning of that name or or the resonances of that name. So my first name is Amina, so I've never had the experience of meeting someone with my first name. But you, Tom, probably have had that experience a lot. And in fact, there's another Tom in the LRV office. Um, So, but I've always imagined that's a kind of interesting and disconcerting experience, although maybe it's when someone with the name Tom is just very used to. Um, But it's, you know, you don't own Tom all by yourself. You have to share Tom with all the other Toms in the world. Yeah, and that's okay. Amir Srinivasan, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Tom. You can read Amir Srinivasan's piece on pronouns in the current issue of the LRB, along with James Meek on the World Health Organization. Ferdinand Mount on Boris Johnson's first year, Alison Light on Charles Booth's London poverty maps, and Catherine Rundle considers the hair. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12.
To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen.